You'll join me in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. This morning we will be in verses 18 through 29 as we continue in our series through Jesus' letters to the churches. This morning we are looking at the church of Thyatira and false teaching. Our key words for our worshipers in training are false, tolerate, and immorality. I want you to think about if you've ever had a root canal before. I've had several root canals in my lifetime. One, a few years ago, was on my birthday. Happy birthday to me. It was a wonderful day. But every time I've ever had a root canal, I have thought about the reputation that that particular dental procedure has, and I think it's interesting. It's something that everyone sort of dreads hearing from the dentist. It's something that nobody wants to have to go through. But my experience has been that at times I've had some pretty severe tooth pain. When I graduated from seminary, I was down in Florida for my graduation, and the night beforehand I was in a hotel room at 2, 3, 4 a.m., pacing back and forth because the pain in my tooth was so bad that I None of the medicine could help it, and I just could not sleep. So I went home. I went directly to the dentist, and he sent me to get a dreaded root canal. And so I got there. I laid on the table. He blew that cold air on the tooth that hurt. And after he picked himself up off the ground, after I knocked him out, he did the root canal. It it, it wasn't... He did this thing, and yet it wasn't gradual. It was this instant moment of relief. It wasn't a moment. The pain was gone. It was absolutely wonderful. I wonder if you've had that experience. It's kind of surreal. But even still, knowing that, the next time I go to the dentist and he says, you need to go in for a root canal, I'm going to dread everything about it. Especially that bit that dental insurance doesn't cover. But when I, when I think about the letter that Jesus writes to this church in Thyatira, I think about the man who had to deliver this message to the church. Surely he read it beforehand, and he's making the, his way a 30, 40-mile journey to the next church. All along the way, he knows he's going in that church to expose a false teacher. And as soon as he does, everyone knows who he's going to be talking about As this letter is read out loud, all eyes will be on that person. So leading up to that moment, there's got to be this sense of terrible dread, that sense of agony, the the sleeplessness, the pain is so severe, I know I have to do something about it, but I don't want to because the procedure is so terrible. But what we find out is that when we do what God calls us to do faithfully, even when it's painful, Even when the procedure to get there is painful, there's always a sense of instant relief. There's always a sense of instant nearness to God. There's always a sense of peace having done what pleases God. It's painful, no doubt about it. It's uncomfortable. But as soon as we do it, we know the peace of God and the nearness of God. And as we've been working through Jesus' letter to the churches, 
We've seen commendations of certain churches. We've seen rebukes of all but one. We've seen promises of tender care and mercy. We've seen warnings of judgment. And this morning we see a commendation, we see a rebuke, we see a promise of judgment, and we see a promise of mercy. We see everything in this letter. We see the exposing of a false teacher within the church. We see the promise of a judgment upon all of those who would follow after this false teaching. It's a very sober word for us this morning. Now, one of the great things about the Bible is that we know the full story. So, as we read things like this, we don't have to sit on the edge of our seats, biting our nails, wondering how it's all going to turn out. And yet, we recognize that there's still life to be lived in the middle of the story. And in the middle of the story, there's a lot of tragedy. There's a lot of sadness. There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of sin and unfaithfulness. And sometimes we're living like the church in Thyatira in unfaithfulness because we live in the middle of the story. There's a lot of application for us today, so let's read the text carefully and see what Jesus gives the messenger to deliver in terms of the hard, difficult news that will bring Sweet relief if they follow through with it. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first, but I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am He who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. To you, I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now this letter begins with words that are repeated from chapter 1 of Revelation. And 
As John was describing his revelation, beginning in chapter 1 and verse 12, he writes, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, his feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. And then here in verse 18, we see this, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. So we understand that what's being referred to in chapter 1 is Jesus, the Son of God. And this is Jesus. It's wonderful. It's Jesus saying, I am the Lord of the church. This is my church. These are my people for whom my blood was shed. He's taking ownership of this church. And the imagery here is drawn primarily from Daniel's chapter 7 and 10. And most scholars agree that the point here is to show that Christ is a king and Christ is a priest based on those texts and given the descriptions of the clothing here in Revelation. Now, part of the priestly role of Christ is to tend to the lampstands. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the priests would trim the lamps. They would remove the wicks and the old oil and refill the lamps with fresh oil. They would relight the lamps that had gone out. They tended to the lamps very regularly. So, likewise, Christ, as priest, tends to the lamp, the lampstands, which is the churches. Commending, correcting, exhorting, warning in other, in other ways that the churches would continue to remain fit to bear the light on their lampstand in a dark world. It's, it's really a beautiful image. And we see Christ playing out this role in each one of these letters. Christ's sovereign oversight of the churches shows us that he's constantly present with his church. He never leaves her to herself. But, but the language also shows us that Jesus is a latter-day divine judge. Since Jesus is always with this church, He knows exactly what she's doing. He always knows her spiritual condition, which will result in either blessing or judgment. He sees everything. He sees all of the hidden motives of the people. He even sees those things that you and I try to hide from ourselves. He's morally pure, hence his feet like burnished bronze, which means they will become the basis for all that he demands and all that that walk after him. That we would walk to reflect the purity of all that he possesses in the midst of this evil and dark world. So altogether, we have, we have the King of Heaven, Jesus Christ, the Bridegroom, and the Judge, walking in the midst of His people, directing His church on her path, and remaining faithful to her, calling her to moral purity, commending her in the way of righteousness, blessing her in the midst of trials and suffering, making her more and more fit to bear the light of the Gospel as a faithful lampstand. So along those lines, the first thing for us to see in verse 19 this morning is a commendation. We see that Jesus loves a faithful, persevering church. 
Again, he says, I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. This is actually a wonderful commendation, isn't it? It sounds a bit like 1 Corinthians 13. Those three things that Paul points out, faith, hope, and love. And look at this church. Their works are marked by love and faith and service and patient endurance. And and not only that, it's not a sort of weak peripheral or surface thing. It's the real deal, real service. And on top of that, they're sticking to it. They're, They're persevering. No doubt, they, they likely had a very keen sense that God is on a move among us. God is at work in our midst. They're doing more now than they ever used to do before. And so they have this, this persevering sort of Christianity where they're giving their lives to the gospel, to the kingdom. Now, many of us can probably attest that along the way in our own Christian lives, we have this time where we sort of level out a bit. Many years ago, I ran in a lot of marathons, competed in triathlons, and one of the things that always stood out to me in doing those was that when you get to the starting line, a person is filled with adrenaline. They're pumped up, they are ready to go, they're really wanting to get after it, and as soon as that gun goes off, you get all wrapped up in the crowd, and you just take off as fast as you can. But after a few races, you realize that you you can't do that. You need to hold back because this is a a long race. A marathon is 26.2 miles of running. So while that person may have hit the gas hard at the starting line by mile 5 or mile 10, they have their hands on their head and they've slowed to a walk while you gingerly run past them. And when we become Christians, our first tendency immediately at the starting line is to sprint as hard and as fast as we can. But we, we sort of want to push aside everything else in our lives. And at some point, we have to realize, look, this is not a sprint. I've got to be in this for the long haul. So I, I can't learn it all and take it all in overnight. I'm not going to. I'm not going to master this thing. It's just not going to happen. I need to realize that the Christian life takes time. It takes patience. It takes endurance. And that's not to say we become less committed or less faithful, or back off from studying God's Word, or doing good works, or or loving others, or being faithful to the Lord Jesus. But we realize that all of these things are not something that we sprint to and do today, and are gone tomorrow, because we petered out soon after the gun went off. Now we realize that the Christian life is one of patient endurance. We need to set the pace and go for the marathon instead of the 5K so that we can hit the finish line. This is why, for example, one of the qualifications for an elder is that he's not a novice. He's not a new convert. Because what happens, we've all been there, a lot of us anyway, right? We get a little bit of knowledge and that's a dangerous thing because we know just a little bit more than someone else. And all of a sudden, we fancy ourselves experts, so we go about correcting everyone's bad theology, and we're going to fix bad churches, and we're going to make sure those people who have been Christians for 30 or 40 years know that the prelapsarian covenant of redemption is an essential framework within which to view the eschatological unfolding of the plenary inspired Word of God in the meta-narrative that begins at the, at the institution of the covenant 
and it concludes when everything comes to its full fruition at the eschaton, right? Remember those days? I mean, I know it's true because I read an article about it on the internet. And you need to believe that. And if you don't, maybe you're not even a Christian. We're new believers. We want to learn. We want to grow. We want to do all of these things as fast as we can. But if we're not accountable to others, we're not willing to listen to their wisdom and guidance, we're going to become very proud very quickly. And then sooner than later, we're going to fizzle out and fall out because we've talked ourselves into maybe being the only Christian living on the planet. You know, the Christian life is one of slow, steady growth. It's one of setting our compass on eternity, making slow, faithful progress in the same direction day after day after day. Listen, we may not look a whole lot different tomorrow than we do today, but maybe in five years we should be able to look back on our lives and say we've seen growth. In 20 years we can look back on today and say we've seen a lot of growth. That's the kind of church that Jesus loves. Slow, steady growth in the right direction. You know, the strongest, sturdiest trees aren't the ones that shoot up in a few months. They're the ones that grow for year after year after year, bit by bit, a little at a time. We want to be spiritual oak trees, not some flimsy piece of balsa wood in the wind. So Jesus commends the church for their faithful perseverance. But it's, it's pretty telling, though, that his commendation of the church at Thyatira spans only a single verse, and his rebuke spans four verses. He has a rebuke because Jesus is a master physician. If your entire body is in great shape, but your heart is about to stop beating, the doctor doesn't say, well, everything else looks great, so we're not going to worry about the heart. We're going to ignore that little bit and get on with the rest of your life. That's negligent. That's malpractice. And so Jesus wants to diagnose the problem and deal with the entire body, not just commending what's working. So often, so often, we want to look at what's working and say, it's all great, so let's ignore what's not. Let's just focus on what's good. Jesus focuses on what's good and he commends it, but he also deals with what's not working. He has four verses to deal with what's wrong. And we see the first part of his rebuke in verses 20 and 21. Our second point this morning is that Jesus hates spiritual adultery. Now the thing that Jesus has against this congregation is their tolerance. Isn't that interesting? They tolerate too much. They are too tolerant. It's quite a bit different from what we hear today, isn't it? Let's look at this. Where do we see that? First, we have to answer this question. Who is this Jezebel that is being tolerated by the church? Most people are familiar with her name, have some idea of what she did. Jezebel shows up in the Old Testament. She was Ahab's wife. But what was the problem with her? Well, Ahab was the Jewish king of Israel, and Jezebel was a pagan woman. 
Now, in many ways, she really was the power behind the throne. She's the perfect example of a wicked woman. Jezebel hated the prophet Elijah. She tried to have him killed on more than one occasion. Her great desire was to bring pagan worship into the covenant community of Israel. And since her husband, Ahab, was a spineless, girly man, she basically ruled the roost and did what she wanted to do to get whatever she wanted. So what does that have to do with the letter here? Well, in this congregation, apparently, there was a Jezebel. Not someone named Jezebel, but someone in comparison. Jesus is rebuking a person in the church who is like Jezebel. Notice here that Jesus says that she is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refused to repent of her sexual immorality. So there's an issue here of her teaching. She's very charismatic. She's very persuasive. And what she's saying is false. In verse 20, she calls herself a prophetess. So she's claiming that she speaks for God. She's the mouthpiece of God. So she wasn't only teaching, but claiming to be God's representative. I have the deep things of God to teach you. I want to bring you deeper into the faith. And so she would have been downplaying the regular life and ministry of the local church. It would have been too superficial. If you really want to go deeper, you need to read my books and come to my seminars and watch my television show and buy my study guide. You want to go deeper. Now, Jezebel in the Old Testament was so influential that she had a seeming army of followers that worshipped Baal with her. And they did things of the most debased, immoral nature. It's quite often of a sexual nature. It's detestable. But in the text, Jesus isn't saying that the church is being sexually immoral in the physical sense. This isn't about the physical act of sexual immorality. It is an illusion here pointing to spiritual adultery. Just as the relationship in the Old Covenant between God and His covenant people runs parallel to the relationship between a husband and a wife, and we see that again in the New New Testament with the New Covenant, we see Paul making that allusion between Christ and His church running parallel to the relationship between a husband and a wife. That is, Paul tells us, the fundamental basis of what a marriage relationship is to be. But the church, in this instance, has bitten off some kind of false teaching, and, is, and what they're doing is committing spiritual adultery. The bride is cheating on the bridegroom. They're descending into the immoral pit of Jezebel-led idolatry. In other words, to be blunt, they're whoring themselves out to other gods. That's what Jesus is getting at, and he hates it. He hates their spiritual adultery. And I want to help you see that this is about teaching here. This is not about the physical act of sexual immorality. In verse 24, we'll get to, but he commends those who are not falling into this. And he says, But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. So Jesus says here, he he doesn't say the sexual morality of physical adultery. He says this teaching. So you've got this prophetess giving Suppose deeper teaching to the people. She's telling them that she has some really deep stuff from them. 
But what she's really doing is that she's really delivering a a message from Satan. So Jesus calls it Satan's deep teaching. Says what he thinks about her. It's false teaching. It's leading people to destruction, and the church is allowing it to happen. The church is allowing her to come in and destroy sound doctrine. And listen, there are some people who are always trying to give some special inside track on how to be spiritual, but they can lead you astray very easily. And if a church is just so open that it lets every kind of poison in, and they call it faithfulness and love for Jesus and spirituality because someone else calls it Christian, some young, zealous Christian or poorly taught older Christian can be so empty-headed that it does a tremendous amount of damage. And no doubt, examples of this abound today. Some of what's called Christian today is so far afield from anything in the Bible, it's astonishing. Somewhere today, many places today, people will be told that if they want something in this life, they need to say what it is and consider that it's already theirs and God will give it to them. Somewhere today, people are being told if that they're going to pray for something. Around circle in a catalog. Or maybe if it's a car, they need to go to the car lot and walk a Promotion, they need to go to their place of work and walk a circle around the building. This is all in a, a book that came out recently. And as they do this, they're claiming that thing in Jesus' name and He is supposed to give it to them. So in the end, what is Jesus? Jesus is nothing more than a dispenser of material goods that we want on this earth. He's a divine Santa Claus who wants us to be rich and have nice things. That's not the Bible. That's not true at all. But thousands and likely millions of people in the world today will have someone tell them, do these things and you will have all that you want. And no doubt that man or woman telling them all of this is saying, I'm a prophet or I'm a prophetess. God has told me this. God is revealing this to me. These are the deeper things of God for those who have enough faith to believe in God for what you're asking for. By the way, you have to give a lot of money to me in order to make this work. A few weeks ago, I was in a golf tournament. We were on the green, and I walked up and I said, I'm going to make this putt. And one of my playing partners said, speak things that are not that they may become. Well, he probably thought that because I'm a pastor, I would be very impressed with him saying that. But I quietly approached the ball. I made a beautiful putt. That doesn't happen a lot, so thank you very much. And then I said, even if I missed it, I told him, even if I missed it, God's in control of every outcome, not me. That's what the Bible says. But what was in his head? What was in his head, what was so often, what so often has been told to him? That very thing, name it, claim it, and it is yours. Amazingly, nobody's naming and claiming suffering or trials or situations that force them to be patient and to trust God. But these are the very things that make us more like Christ. A doctor in Nigeria told me that when she goes into a room and a large family is sitting in the room and she's there to see a patient, she will say, who is sick? And the leader of the household will say, 
None of us are sick by God's grace. Praise God. Well, then why are you here? Well, my son has been coughing. You see, the idea is if I don't say we're sick, then it will just go away. I'm naming it. I'm claiming it. And therefore, it is. That doesn't make us more like Christ. That gives us lives of comfort and ease on this earth as if that is what the Lord has designed for us. Look, the point is not to become heresy hounds, to look for every person who is wrong so that we can blast them and put them on notice that we've got an eye on them. The point is that we need to be certain that our focus is on the Lord Jesus Christ. That our focus is on the God of the Bible and not on worldly, selfish, flesh-driven ambitions for which we simply try to use God in order to get them. Even very well-meaning people can have a methodology or a way of thinking that they end up depending on those things instead of God Himself. What may seem like deep teaching, what gets presented as deep teaching, can actually be the deep things of Satan. Here's a good rule of thumb for all of us. If a new book comes out and everyone is going on about how it's the next best thing for Christianity and it has some deep, profound stuff that's never been said before, you can be assured that you're better off staying away from it completely. It's presented as deep teaching. may turn out to be Satan's deep teaching. I'm not bashing new books. Books are great. Just ask my Amazon account. But... When new books are saying brand new things, beware. Beware. See, when the devil comes along, he's not going to come along and say, hey, look, here's a great big packet of lies. Go ahead and believe all of my lies. That's not how he works. No, he's going to come with a Jezebel who's extremely dangerous, who's extremely attractive, who claims to have some deep, special knowledge delivered to her from God, and she's, she or he are going to be crafty with their language. They're going to say the right things. They're going to know how to manipulate your emotions in just the right way, and they're going to dress it all up with a fancy cover Are they going to do it at a flashy conference or behind a glass pulpit to make it seem like it's slick and worthy of your time and your effort and your ears and your heart? So, brothers and sisters, we have to be very careful that we are discerning. I love what I read by D.A. Carson this week on this. He said this, Methodologically, the only way you ever begin to get it right is to read the Bible, read the Bible, read the Bible, and read the Bible. We're a generation that is not a great generation of Bible readers. We proof text the Bible now and then, but we haven't steeped our minds in Scripture so that we've learned, the things, uh, learned to think God's thoughts after Him. That's what we need, brothers and sisters. We need to know our Bibles so that we would not whore ourselves out to another God, that we would not commit spiritual adultery. Jesus hates it. And what are the results of that? Well, we see the results of that in our third point in verses 22 and 23. Jesus will judge unfaithfulness. Now, as we've already seen, the Lord is not just the judge of all creation in general, but He very specifically is also the judge of the church. We're not going to camp out here because we've dealt with Jesus' judgment in previous letters, and, and here we see it again. In some way, Christ has warned this group of false teachers that they need to repent. Whoever they are, whoever this Jezebel is, 
in the church. He's given time to repent. It has not been done. And so Christ announces that he will punish the false teacher and also all who are following after this teaching. And yet in the midst of that, we still see the tender mercy of Jesus, don't we? What does he say? Unless they repent of her works. There's still time. He's still giving time through the warning of this letter. Jezebel's punishment is to be... It's an allusion to suffering while the followers will face great tribulation. In other words, they will face significant punishment. Consequently, it's the same language that's used for those who have rejected Christ altogether, proving to us exactly what's going on here. While they're in the church and claiming to be Christians, they have proved otherwise by what they have taken. They will all suffer punishment if they do not repent of false teaching and believing. And this judgment of tribulation will become so well known that it will become evident to all of the churches that Christ is the judge whom he claims to be since he is able both to know who is guilty and righteous and respond to each accordingly. The false teachers of Thyatira may promote involvement and idolatry and they may be able to hide their evil motives from the eyes of others. But God sees all and all will be made known and all the churches will see it and know it. It may seem harsh. It may seem harsh to us. She's just a false teacher. Leave her alone. Why do you have to go on talking about Paula White? She's just a lady. Just leave her alone. Why do you have to say anything about Joyce Meyer? Let me ask you this. If you're a mother, if you're a father... If someone is seeking to molest your children, won't you do everything, impo- everything possible to guard your little ones? If you're a wife and you see someone coming and seducing your husband and it's subtle and cunning and he doesn't see it, but you do, does not love motivate you to jump in the way because with all of your heart you long to deliver him from the evil snares? But you see, these things, these are moments in time here on the earth. Jesus' concern is for all eternity. Jesus' concern is for our soul. Jesus is the father of his spiritual children. He is the husband of his spiritual bride. He doesn't want us to be molested. He doesn't want us to be taken captive by some seductress. Jesus understands that false teaching an ungodly influence. You see this clearly in the letters, is far more dangerous to any local church than persecution or martyrdom. As far as Jesus is concerned, it's far greater that someone comes in here and kills every single one of us for our faith than any one of us falls into false teaching. Persecution and martyrdom will never destroy the church of Jesus Christ, but false teaching and ungodly influences always will. Always will. But thanks be to God for the ending of this letter, verses 24 through 29, we learn that Jesus is always faithful to his bride. Remember at the beginning of the letter, Jesus commended the church for persevering. And here again, we have a word on perseverance. He says, hold fast what you have until I come. 
The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He's telling them, if you're faithful to the truth of my word, stay faithful to the truth of my word. Delight in it. Hold on to what you have. Be faithful because I am holding on to you. He's commending all who press on. All who press on without being seduced into false teaching by something else or someone else. He's promising that they will share in the inheritance of the nations. Brothers and sisters, there's no way to emphasize enough how important it is that all of us know the Bible. That we know the Bible really well. That all of us know what it says. Not just individual texts, not just your favorite verses, not just a few stories, but the entire story. From beginning to end and within all the parts of the story within that that make up the whole. We need to know how the Bible argues for what it argues. We, we need to always make sure that we keep up the guardrails of sound teaching in our own lives because it's so incredibly easy sometimes to want the text to say something different than what it actually does. And oh, how I pray that it's not just a few of us but the entire church, you and I, that that we want to be commended by Christ, encouraged to keep persevering in the truth, knowing and holding to the truth of His Word, not wavering from it, persevering in it, and not letting go, realizing that sometimes we're going to have to do some root canals, but the relief is so sweet. In our days, there are many opportunities to waver from the truth, and it would be easy, it would be so easy to do. There are professing believers, many pastors, entire churches, some entire denominations that are now making all kinds of public statements about how they've changed their views on certain things to conform to the changing times of our day so that they can be more tolerant. What did we say at the beginning? Jesus' rebuke is that the church was being too tolerant. And He promised swift judgment. There is nothing new under the sun might feel different than when you grew up, but the reality is that these things have always been there. So for the church to change direction wherever the wind blows is not faithfulness, it's cowardice because of a desire to not have to say hard things that people might run up against. And yes, it may, it may feel like going in for a root canal when you have to address it. It will. When you have to stand against something that will no doubt earn you the label of being intolerant or bigoted or hateful or unloving. But our concerns, brothers and sisters, are not here on this earth. Our eyes are set on eternity. And once it's all finished, we realize that the pain and the suffering that comes with the trial is worth the finished result. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Brothers and sisters, we have a great and distinct privilege that one day, one day we will rule with Christ in the new heavens and the new earth forever and ever. Do you know Christ? Do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Turn to Christ, who loves and provides for and keeps His bride and His faithful bridegroom. 
Do not turn from Him. Run to Him. He will never cast you out. He will never turn you away. You will have the everlasting privilege of getting to know Him more and more and more, day by day, for eternity. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to Redeemer Baptist Church.